Welcome to Soul Talk, soulful conversations exploring who you are, why you're here, and how to live your most authentic life. My name is Coop Blackson, nationally best-selling author of You Are The One, transformational teacher, and your host. I invite you to subscribe to the Soul Talk podcast for weekly inspiration from me, where I will share with you some powerful ideas, thoughts, and practical life wisdom to help you live life more fully, freeing yourself from your past, reclaiming your power, and living your true life's purpose. You can also go to www.coopblackson.com, enter your name and email to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment. Let's get started with Soul Talk. Welcome back, folks. Welcome to another very special episode of Soul Talk. As you know, each week I bring on uh, folks from around the world that I deeply respect or have been inspired by in some way. And my guest today, I'm very excited about today's interview. I've been looking forward to having her on for a few years now, and I think we finally synced and made it happen. You probably know of her work, and if you don't, I think you're in for a, a real treat. The holistic psychologist, Dr. Nicole Lepera, author of How to Do the Work, and many other amazing books, which you're about to find out more about. Welcome to Soul Talk. Thank you so much for having me, Cute. I'm honored to be here. So I've been looking forward to this, and I'm curious where the interview is going to go. Um, first, I just want to jump in and just find out. I'm curious. I'm always curious as to how people found their calling, found their purpose, you know, and found their work or how their work found them. So, just tell me a bit about like how, how, how did you start doing what you're doing? Was it was it something from childhood where you were always helping kids and you know had this insight? Was there a moment? Was was it your parents? Like what what led to the path of doing what you're doing now? I think my journey was really in two different stages. Uh, As long as I can remember, I was absolutely fascinated by human psychology, um, by trying to understand other people, how they were similar to me, how they were different to me. I was really fascinated by the powerful brain or mind. Um, And I did a lot of reading in psychology. So probably around high school when I started to get asked by my family, well, what is it you're going to do when you go to college? And it was intuitively, I'm going to be a psychologist. I want to help other people. Of course, many of it was Much of it was grounded in my own desire to understand my own psychology for me to understand and make sense of the anxiety that I was suffering with for as long as I can remember. And of course, understanding that many others were suffering in many different ways. There was a part of me that wanted to increase their own awareness so that I could help them relieve the suffering. So I marched forward. I got the PhD in clinical psychology, which was the way to practicing at the time when I was in school. I hung my virtual shingle, if you will. (laughs) And several years into a very successful practice very early on, started to feel really empty um, Mm. with life in general. Um, Why? It was- what was, was there was there something in particular as to nothing what nothing had happened so that for me was really confusing how i could be you know kind of at the end of this list of lifelong achievements all of which i had completed how i could have a successful practice i was living in the city my home city of philadelphia so i was very near to my family um i had a successful or committed partnership at the time so i was confused and i think shamed myself because I would go in week after week and work with clients and individuals who had incredible amounts of suffering. So I almost diminished what it was that I was feeling and didn't really necessarily even explore it until um, I started to have some really upsetting physical symptoms. Mm. Um, I actually started to faint. I fainted out of nowhere. I never had any moment of losing consciousness in my past. And so after it had happened the second time, I, I think as many of us do, I went online to search for what I thought I was, you know, kind of Googling, you know, brain issues, what could happen, fainting. Um, And long story short, one of the rabbit holes I traveled down, um, I started to learn about um, epigenetic branch of science. Um, Prior to then, I really understood only the genetic determinism, which simply this idea that we have these genes that encode inside of us and things like, you know, psychological illness, physical illness are inevitable. Um, I saw very much of that in my family. Um, a lot of anxiety in my family, a lot of health issues. I was inevitably waiting for the moment of the health issue. So that's essentially what brought me online. Now, mm-hmm. however, um, I read about, again, this model of, yes, gen- genetics are part of the story. Um, the other part of the story is environment, um, lifestyle choices. And that then sent me kind of spiraling down, not only to learn more about health, um, wellness, though the body in particular, 
Um, I ended traveling down a lot of routes around nervous system and nervous mm. system health and really then began to understand not only the symptoms that I was having, not only the loss of consciousness, the lifelong anxiety, I began to see a pathway of possibility for myself. So I think as many journeys begin, um, I began to create new choices on the daily, caring for my body in a new way, learning how to practice nervous system or emotional regulation. And several you know, months in, I started to actually feel better um, and gain traction. So that's kind of the second leg then on my journey to finding my way. Um, in addition to that, I started to explore consciousness, right? And this mm -hmm. kind of ability to be present to our life circumstances. And what I came to be aware of is so many of the choices that I was making, even to, you know, have that endless list of achievements for me was mm. so much grounded in my conditioning of my childhood in the ways that I was validated and connected, especially to my mom early on was exactly kind of the path that I continued to follow. So working from the body, working from the mind, peeling back all of this conditioning, what I was really the gift I was able to discover was not only a different way to work with individuals more holistically first individually and now within a community um, but i was really you know kind of beginning to discover my own passion and my own purpose which was less mm -hmm. of doing that kind of one-on-one -on -one work the way i would kind of describe it in that kind of supportive role and i think i resonate much more now with a joke running in my family was always my dad was like you just want to be a lifelong student are you ever going to get out of school <laughs> and i think he was very intuitively onto something because i think the reality of it was I've now found my way into what my true passion and calling is, which is to be a lifelong student so that I could be a teacher um, of some of this content, this information. Of course, now I do so within community so that people can begin to impact their own lives and create change and everything in between. Mm, beautiful. Um, where did like this, the sense of holistic psychologist, could you, could you explain just what you mean by holistic so people can get a sense of like, what that really means? Holistic, again, really emphasizes, of course, the power of the mind. That's traditionally how I was trained, this very top-down approach. We have this powerful brain. We can think our way into future different outcomes, mm -hmm. right? Change the way you think, change the way you feel, change the way you are or you behave in the very CBT framework. Um, though holistic to me expands that focus to include the body and all of those top-up processes, again, the dysregulation and the imbalances in our physiology that are impacting the way we think. Um, the way we're able to create our future outcomes. And mm -hmm. I would even wrap in there. And I think this beautifully applies to the work that you do, um, the deeper sense of who we are. Yeah. Um, I love how your concept of kind of liberated living. And I truly believe of mm -hmm. this concept of essence or soul or whatever the language is that resonates with each of you unique listeners. But I do believe that there is something internal inside mm. each of us, that free being, a passion, a purpose of creativity that I also kind of wrap into this definition of holistic. Mm. So simply we have different aspects yeah. of our being that are creating our experience in any given moment. And as you become more aware of those different aspects, more conscious of the impact that they're playing, then a lot of my work is really on empowerment. Then you could begin to create new choices mm. to create the outcomes that you want, which is hopefully touching that place of liberation, yeah. of passion, of connection, of creativity, and actually mm. expressing that in the world around us. Mm. Beautiful. Let's say someone listening and they're, and they're listening and, and they're in a place where they feel, they're feeling stuck, right? They're listening. I just feel, I feel stuck. I just feel stuck. I, I don't even know why I feel stuck, but I feel stuck within myself. What, where, where, I guess, where did they start? Like, where did they start to do the work? Where did they begin? They don't know where to begin. They just, I'm fucking stuck. What, <laughs> where, where do I go? I think the the first answer I'm going to give is, is might be a surprising one uh, to celebrate that awareness of, of being oh. stuck. Um, I think so many of us were blind to even the reality that we continue to repeat patterns that are creating these stuck points. Um, we, I think, mm. are much like the metaphor I always like to paint is the horse with blinders on it. Some of us aren't even aware, myself included, up until I had those fainting moments, I wouldn't have had the language to say, oh, I feel stuck in this moment. I, I was shaming myself because mm. I thought that I was feeling exactly like I ought to feel and like everyone around me was feeling. So I will always break change or the process of transformation down into two steps and the reason why I'm emphasizing that first step, the first step is always becoming conscious mm -hmm. and becoming conscious of this reality that you are living 
within that stuck place or repeating patterns that aren't serving you will create that possibility to begin to take that second step, which is make new choices to become unstuck. Something that I want to say just a bit too about being stuck is while we can change, we are evolving creatures developmentally, psychologically, mm. you know, I think that essence is an ever uh, kind of a continued movement and, and energy, if you will. The reality of it is if we want to kind of drill down our physiology and speak from our nervous system's perspective, while we can change, we don't actually prefer to change. Yeah, We prefer those familiar habits and patterns. So the yeah. second thing I want to say is not only celebrating that you're stuck, uh -huh. I want to affirm anyone who's stuck that you are, that, that's completely okay. That's a natural state. Even if we have insight and awareness and an idea of what we want to become unstuck around, our nervous system is driving us mm. to stay stuck because there's a false sense of control, right? safety in the familiarity. Even if I'm sure listeners are probably saying, oh my gosh, I have a lifetime though of negative consequences to myself, to my relationships, to the world around me because of these habits and patterns. The reality of it is we're quite literally driven mm -hmm. to repeat them. So to get unstuck again is really that practice of embodying those mm -hmm. new choices, despite them being difficult, despite mm -hmm. there being resistance, right? All of the reasons in our mind that we convince ourselves out of change, all mm -hmm. of the uncomfortable feelings in our body that we experience when we begin mm -hmm. to make new choices. It really is that daily commitment to taking oftentimes the slower approach to change, wow. right? I think it's very natural. If we hit rock bottom, if our life implodes or explodes, it's really natural to relieve our suffering, to try to relieve our suffering, to think, oh, well, I'm just going to overhaul my life. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to be a new person from top to bottom starting tomorrow. And the reality of it is because we're not wired to want to mm -hmm. change, the more new choices that we make in any given moment, the more we're going to challenge that nervous system. And before long, we might be able to white knuckle it for a couple of days, a couple of weeks. Yeah. And we're right back. So unfortunately, I'm always the professor of not only the <laughs> difficulty of change, but the slow approach. It's Can about you speak more to that, more about the slow approach? Because you know, I think in our in our sort of social media culture and instant gratification, we just want to like biohack, healing hack, soul everything needs to be hacking it now. <laughs> and and we can push ourselves, but I really like what you're saying. So, so what do you mean by the slow approach? What does that look like? And are there any things we can do to work with the nervous system in that, in that process? And again, I want to honor um, oftentimes the deep suffering that, that's yeah. creating this desire to just find the quick fix. I, mm -hmm. I had for many years spent as, as that person, if I just find the one thing right that I could do um, and if I could just begin to do it immediately, I will feel better. So I really want to be empathetic um, to that that place of desire. And yes, to speak to your point, I do think that we are given then um, endless information to overhaul our life, to try and create that that change that we want. Though not only will we, cha we challenge the resistance and our nervous system's ability to navigate the natural stress of change, a lot of us, I think, look for the quick fix um, because it will continue to allow us to bypass not only the slow approach that change won't happen overnight, but oftentimes to actually create change and right become conscious, what we're becoming conscious of are really deep-rooted feelings, very overwhelming emotions, a past that we don't actually want yeah. to yeah. become present to, right? So it's very attractive, this idea mm -hmm. of, right, this external thing that can then just take away this pain and I don't have to feel what it is that has happened or what it is that is happening. And so again, the way and the way to work with our nervous system is of course, becoming, I think, aware of where this stuckness comes, where this desire to find the quick fix, even something external where I don't have to go inward. I think for a lot of us that might be able to relieve maybe some of the shame that we've accumulated, maybe even some of the inner critical voice where we're shaming ourselves for not being able to do something differently. But then again, there's still that second step, which is necessary, beginning to embody that challenging, stressful moment of change, which for some of us means, right, turning our attention to the emotions in our body and actually yep. teaching our nervous system how to tolerate that stressful mm -hmm. experience, that emotionally upsetting experience little by little. So staying committed, right, to the conscious practice each and every day, to creating those new moments of choice each and every day. And then being really present 
to how I feel and all of the discomfort. And for a lot of us, underlying emotions from decades mm. ago that are coming to the surface that are going to create, right? The desire, the instinct to just, oh, distract myself away again. But learning how to sit with and feel the pain because mm -hmm. the pain is always below the surface. The mm -hmm. pain is actually what's driving the habitual pattern, the way we've learned to distract ourselves away from the pain, some of us for a lifetime. Mm. So you're talking about learning how to tolerate some of the feet, the, the, the discomfort. And can you, I actually want to slow that down too. C could you break down what that might look like for someone to begin doing in a moment where they're like, I feel some sadness or I feel some pain around something. Like what does it look like for them to sort of internally ease into tolerating that pain? So we can even start with the first step, yeah. um, becoming present. Mm -hmm. So many of us spend a life distracted, looking outward, distracted on social media, worrying about other people. So the practice really begins in uh, a standard quick example or practice that I give to members of the community, members of my membership, South Healer Circle, is setting a daily intention, alert on our phone, a post-it note, or an wow. intention around a particular activity that you do every day, drinking coffee in the morning, and using that as your check-in point. And mm -hmm. beginning right throughout the day to notice, the first thing you want to notice is where's my attention? Right? Am I rehashing an argument that I had in the morning? Am I, am I scrolling on social media? Am I thinking or worrying about what someone else around me needs? And in that moment, can I make the choice to refocus my attention on my physical body? Mm -hmm. right, so now I'm becoming conscious of the fact that I'm disconnected from myself, my physical self, and I'm beginning to flex that muscle because we always get to choose where we put our attention. So now mm -hmm. if I turn it to my body, then we could start to have a conversation of how to navigate these upsetting or stressful moments. When I start to pay attention to my body more and more, I'll begin to notice sensations, right? I'll begin to notice shifts in my heart rate. It'll quicken, it'll slow in certain moments. Similar with my, my breath, my breath will quicken. It might slow, I might hold my breath around certain mm -hmm. moments. Mm -hmm. My muscles might begin to feel tense, might begin to feel relaxed. I might localize sensations elsewhere. Now, the reason why I'm specifically talking about those three areas, my breath, my heart rate, and my muscles, those are signs of my nervous system state of activation. My When my stress goes up, when I'm making a new choice, mm. my heart rate will quicken, my muscles will tense, oh. my breath will quicken, my body is feeling that stress. Mm. The same thing goes for our emotions. Emotions are actually physiological experiences, just to use your example, cute, of um, sadness in the body, right? Sadness mm. happens in our body. Mm. You might feel a heaviness right? We might feel, see a tearfulness. We might actually get tears falling down our face. We'll mm. talk about anger. Anger might feel like tension, a clenching of our fist, right? The core emotions actually translate to physiology in our body. So now if more and more I'm turning my attention to my physical body and I'm beginning to notice those different shifts in my nervous system activating when I'm stressed out, in sensations becoming alive, right? Because many of us have been carrying sadness and grief for a lifetime, anger from unmet needs, sadness yeah. from loss, right? If I now become present, now I can intentionally, the first step still applies, mm -hmm. I'm conscious of what's happening. Now in that new space, instead of doing the habitual thing I always do when I'm sad or when I'm angry, erupting or exploding, or when I'm sad, you know, disconnecting from the support I need around me, just as two examples, now I can intentionally begin to regulate my body. I can mm. learn how to calm my breathing and my heart rate. I can learn how to release the tension in my muscles to better deal with the stress of change. Emotionally, I, I can learn how to be present to these different sensations and maybe learn new strategies instead of turning away from the support I need, right? Learning how to be vulnerable and ask for the support that I need. Allowing the grief and the loss, which are very real parts of our human experience, allowing ourselves to sit with, yeah. those sensations, then we can have choice as to what we do, as opposed to, like I was saying earlier, continue to do the thing we always do while all of this was just happening outside of our awareness. And we catch ourselves somewhere down the line doing <laughs> something we don't want to have done, creating harm to ourselves, or engaging mm -hmm. in right kind of habits of self-betrayal where we're not actually honoring those emotional needs in that moment. Mm, beautiful. Is there, um, is there such a thing as sort of 
feeling too much where maybe for someone who might say to you, I've been feeling my feelings, you know, and, and I've been feeling my grief and it, I'm feeling it. It's just not going away. You know, it, 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 what do you say to someone who might be coming from that place? I would, what's happening for them? I would wonder whether when we're talking about feeling our feelings or emotions, mm-hmm. whether or not we're allowing it, that presence, that focus of attention, just continuing on with this example to be in our body. Because the reality of these, the physiological experience of an emotion, I think the science has it upwards of, I write this in my first book, How to Do the Work, upwards of 90 seconds. It takes our body to metabolize the cortisol, our heart rate to naturally go down and to all of the other hormones that, you know, kind of map onto the different emotions if we were to allow it to just be in our body. The Mm. reality of it is we're living in a body attached to a mind. And most of us don't allow our focus just to be on those sensations. We begin to narrate the sensations, make mm-hmm. meanings of the sensations, right? We pull it up to our mind and now yeah. we begin these, we begin to rehash or rehearse what had happened to cr- create mm-hmm. the sensations in our body. Some of us from a lifetime ago, we're reliving in our mind mm-hmm. and that's a natural thing that's going to happen when something activates an emotion that's similar, especially to the mm-hmm. past emotions, maybe that we've had an an overwhelming childhood where there was a lot of stress or there was a lot of grief or there was a lot of anger. Mm. And something in our current moment happens similar to that and our physiology shifts, it's natural that our mind is going to go back down those ruts. Not Mm. only what happened now is going to become what happened before and we're going to then begin to create or live the emotion on in our mind. So the the big feelers out there, we're all energetic beings. We all have the ability to attune to our environments, to feel emotionally in reaction to what is happening, though a lot of us don't allow them to just be that emotional experience or that physiological experience, I should say. We narrate it, we create it, we live it on. Some of us do that for a lifetime and we become Mm. our Mm. sadness, we become our grief, we become our explosive anger. So we really wanna pay attention So when we're making that shift, when we're not just allowing the sensation to be the sensation, when we're beginning to kind of re-ruminate or rehearse Mm. what it is that had happened. Mm. Got it. You know, sometimes we we think we're feeling our feelings, but we're really more thinking them or resisting them or analyzing them in some way. And we're kind of thinking about them, but we're not truly feeling it in the body as sensation. Got it. Really wise too, because a lot of us, that's a protection. Yeah. We think that we're being insightful and analytical and understanding ourselves. And in reality, right, that could be the way that we're protecting ourselves mm-hmm. that we learned at one time where that was the only thing we could do is to intellectualize or make sense or try to solve problems with our mind mm-hmm. as opposed to feeling it with our body. Mm-hmm. Can 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 everyone change? Can anyone change? Can we all change? Um Yeah. Can everybody change, or is or, or are there people that you have seen that are destined to not change? Is it is it karma? Is it you know past life karma? Just their destiny in this lifetime, or can anyone, if they do the work, change? What are your thoughts there? When I began this journey, um, because of similarities like I was sharing earlier that I saw in my family around emotional issues, around physical issues, I would read about, like I shared, fascinated with the mind. I would read fascinating stories of change, people creating (laughs) incredible transformation in their life. And I wouldn't necessarily tear them down as some of us, you know, can do when we hear new information or information that challenges us. But I would simply close the book and say, oh, good for you. And I would remain in that in a much more limited way of thinking about what was possible for me. Um, So I truly believed at my core that in many ways I was, it was impossible for Mm -hmm. me to change certain things. So to answer your question, having lived this journey, um, having understood and learned the science of of neuroplasticity, our brain's ability to change, bioplasticity, our body's ability to change, something that we retain the possibility of change in both of those areas throughout our life. 
and having created change for myself. I truly believe that all of us can change, but I wanted to just share that first practiced part because our beliefs are ingrained in our lived experience. And Mm -hmm. I did not see change in a lot of ways while my family has changed change dynamics, change their own relationship with their you know, individual selves. I do often hear, especially from my dad, um, who's 86 years old, you know, a very kind of steadfastness. And this is just how I am. And of mm. course, that is his truth because he's lived a lifetime of validating his own inability to change in some areas. So I just wanted to make that kind yeah. of distinction a bit. Listeners might not believe themselves able to change. It might be even very challenged hearing me say, no, I believe we all can change. Mm-hmm. Again, our belief is going to be grounded in how much change we've seen and created. Mm-hmm. And as you go on a journey like this of becoming conscious and making those small daily choices, mm-hmm. I think you can open yourself up to not only the possibility of change for yourself, but like I'm very kind of globally uh, you know, kind of acknowledging the possibility. I truly believe that we all inherently have. We all have that possibility. Beautiful. I, yeah, I, I just wanted people to feel, in case they might be feeling, but I'm. This is just who I am, and feeling stuck. Just, just even being open to the possibility and hearing someone who's been through a journey and opening to the possibility can create an opening for someone. And so it's beautiful. Um, I want to talk about love for a moment. And I see your book, How to to Be the Love That You Seek. (laughs) Um, Loving oneself, something we often hear, sometimes very challenging. And many of us, we we read books about, you know, love yourself, love yourself, love yourself, be kind, you know, focus on what's beautiful, don't compare yourself to other people, just love yourself. You're unique. Yay, great. But... Many times we we know we should love ourselves and we kind of know what to do, but we still don't feel it. Like, uh, okay, I do the affirmations and I'm saying kind things. I'm going to the gym and doing, but I don't feel inherently I am enough. What, 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 what do we do? What is what is someone who f- doesn't feel I am enough intellectually, but here, how to work with them? Our at its at our core, before we even talk about loving ourselves, right? In action and belief, everything you're beautifully describing, our foundational relationship with ourselves, how we even treat ourselves or show up in care of our physical body, our emotional body, our relational self is formed. That relationship is formed in childhood mm. based on the consistent presence and secure or lack thereof connections that we had with the caregivers on whom we were completely, at least physically dependent and yeah. emotionally dependent. Um, we need, um, I don't know if listeners have heard of the concept of co-regulation, but our nervous systems mm. to become stressed and become calmed. I mean, we're thinking about a crying infant. They need the presence of a not only caregiver to meet the physical need, being hungry or, you know, needing to be changed, whatever it is in that moment, they actually need the calming presence of a secure grounded nervous system. Mm. So in, in childhood, when we, when we don't have right to, to be in relation with oneself is to be present to all of oneself, to have that safe and secure caregiver, who's first and foremost interested and curious about us as a different being than them. And I think a lot of, you know, caregivers, we they they blur lines, they have different beliefs. Our children look like us in many ways. So we think that they are us and we don't hold that space for that presence of discovery. Well, who are you as a unique being? And more so, many of us, especially adults, were raised by generations of caregivers who didn't have the information and the resources to have the safety and the security in their own childhoods yeah. to develop that loving or even secure connection before we talk about a loving connection with themselves. Mm. So when many of us do grow up and especially if in childhood, um, from birth until about age seven, Seven, our brain developmentally is in what is called, it's still developing first and foremost. I think that's something that's important to understand. We're not born fully developed. Our nervous system Mm -hmm. is developing. Our brain is developing. We're developing different capabilities um, to make sense of ourselves in the world. And prior to age eight, so about from birth to age seven, 
we're in what is called an egocentric stage of brain development, which simply means all roads, all happenings in our life lead back to us. We're the cause and we are the byproduct of everything that is happening around us. We can't, as we age, we develop the ability to write zoom out and say, oh, okay, you know, my pre- my caregiver's presence or lack thereof or their ability to emotionally be available or not might have had, has nothing to do with me, right? They're busy at work. They're financially constrained. They have had abuse themselves or whatever the reason is, right? We can't zoom out and understand all of that nuance and the fact that things outside of us, you know, impact those around us. We will only see us as being the cause of their, just to use this example, absence, their inability to be that safe, secure base of connection. So this Mm -hmm. is what contributes, right? When we now dive into love in and of itself, love is actually, in my opinion, that acceptance for all of us, the light, the dark, right? The shadow, everything that makes us, us. And there are all of those aspects. It's that safe, secure connection, that base. Mm. And again, when we didn't have our needs met, the only sense we could make of it is because there's something must be unlovable or unworthy about us Mm. that created their absence in whatever it was that they, our caregivers were absent. Right. So then we really do in our bodies develop this core belief that there is something inherently wrong, unworthy. Yeah. And again, because we need these caregivers to modify mm-hmm. for some of us, how we care for our physical bodies, how much we suppress our emotions, what aspects of ourselves are celebrated. So we allow those seen and, you know, when the moments where we are told not to cry or it's weak to do this or not to show this aspect of ourselves, because what will the neighbors think? All of mm-hmm. these you know, pieces of us get suppressed beneath the surface. So then we grow up to be adults who are not only disconnected Mm. from who we really are at our core. And this is why we could hear all the beautiful affirmations in the Mm. world. You could hear me say and affirm that we are all worthy creatures, regardless of what has happened to us in our body and often in our behaviors where we don't show up in the action of acceptance, where we continue to suppress parts of ourselves. Mm where we can continue to betray ourselves by overstepping limits, energetically saying yes to things or emotionally saying yes to things and being present for people when we don't have the ability or the bandwidth to. Mm. And then unfortunately, until we become conscious and create those action change in those, in those places, we will continue to strengthen that belief that we're just as unworthy as we once believed ourselves to be. Mm. Beautiful. Um, it's kind of a side question. I want you to give a bit of guidance to parents. Um, being that that caregiver role is so, is fundamental, is so important. Um, what do parents need to know in terms of how we can best show up to provide the presence for our children? what's most important? What, what do they really need? Um, and, and, you know, especially in our culture today where dad is working, mom is working sometimes, you know, there's so much distraction and, and the kid may not get that, that those needs being met. They may not get that total feeling of presence and connection. What do we do? I think parents largely, I appreciate us going down this this path. I think parents largely are under-resourced and under-supported globally. Yeah. I don't think parenting is thought to be, believed to be, and it's definitely not treated to be yeah. the foundationally important you know, so role important. and task that it is. And like you're beautifully sharing for many contextual reasons, societal reasons, financial yeah. reasons, parents are just not supported yeah. in the way that they need to be. Mm-hmm. I say that to also offer... Um, to parents, the reality. And again, this goes back to, I think, a cliche that we've probably heard a million times that we love to hate that took me actually a minute to pause and think mm-hmm. about the, when you get on an airplane, those of us who have ever flown air traveled anywhere and we hear mm-hmm. that same announcement, right? Put your oxygen mask on first before tending even to the child next to you. And one day more recently than not, I just took a moment and I'm like, oh God, same announcement. But I'm like, huh, you know, as simplistic as this may sound, The reality of it is if I don't have my oxygen mask on and I lose consciousness because of turbulence or pressure change or whatever it is, 
I actually can't mm. care or put the oxygen mask on or help anyone in the cabin next to me. So saying that to say and translating that to parenting, I think a lot of us, again, because of conditioned beliefs, um, we have this idea that especially because we are in the care of a completely dependent creature, that it is our, we need to fully be, well, I hear the language selfless, fully uh-huh. in care of, right? And the reality of it is going back to that, that analogy of the oxygen mask, I think parents continue to under support themselves by not creating the possibility that they too have mm-hmm. needs mm-hmm. and that if they're not tending to their physical needs and they're running on survival mode and they're overstepping their own, you know, kind of boundaries and they're not replenishing in some time or some space, then to be attuned to their child and in care of these near endless needs that children have is going to be virtually impossible. So really want to emphasize um, the importance of, and also then, as I'm saying that, offer how impactful modeling is for children. Mm-hmm. I think parenting is one of those areas where we're looking for the script, right? The thing to say in the moment to shift our child's behavior. When in reality, our children are far more attuned to how they experience us energetically. And again, if we're that over mm-hmm. over resource. Uh, you know, under-resourced parent, stressed out in survival mode, doesn't matter what we're saying, they're going to feel our stress. They're going to feel our lack of emotional availability. What they will, however, see if we do make the choice, I was really impacted by a member of the community self-healer circle. We have what very much looks like a social media, uh, like a Facebook page that all individual members get. It's not mm. Facebook though at all. It's our, It's a private platform, but they can write posts. And we were talking about energy and the body and the nervous system. And I was really impacted. One of the members wrote, I used to feel so shameful when my child was having a meltdown in the room, in their bedroom. And I would stop before I went in and, and take some, some deep breaths. And I used to feel so bad that I wasn't immediately present when my daughter, I think it was, needed me in that moment. And because of the nature of the course that we were talking about that month about energy and the body and the importance of nervous system, they then wrote, you know, a statement of gratitude. I'm so grateful that mm. what I am now learning that what I was doing in that moment was actually an act of care for myself. Mm. Those calm, deep belly breaths, giving this member a moment to ground and regulate because now they have to go deal with a dysregulated child on the other side of the door. Right. And however, when they were able to take those few seconds or moments for themselves, they were able to go in so much more grounded, so much more present, so much less likely to become reactive to then their child's stress. So using that as an example, understanding like you're very realistically sharing, there's a lot that parents have to tend to, especially when there's, you know, a financial insecurity and all of these, you know, obligations outside of the home and within the home. So even tying all this beautifully full circle together, Hmm. I'm a big proponent of small moments of small moments for parents to not only regulate themselves, the beauty and the modeling in that is you have a child who's starting to learn and see because in action, you're showing that you have needs and you are showing then Mm. your child how to show up in service because over time, your child's gonna develop into their own individual self and then they're gonna have relationships And if they are right, conditioned or modeled this selfless behavior at the service of someone else, chances are they're going to continue to overstep their own boundaries Mm. to show up in service of someone else, even at the expense of themselves. So Mm. moments I think that many of us, you know, call selfish or actually need it. They're necessary moments to self-regulate. They're beautiful moments to model the ability Mm. to meet one's individual needs, even in relationship with other Um, And they can happen in these small micro moments throughout our day. They don't have to be right. Even go back to the self-love, full days of self-indulgence. I actually don't think that that's what self-love is at all. Mm. I think it's small moments of care where maybe we're even looking at, you know, our own pain in Mm. a new way. It isn't just a fun, nice experience when we're rebuilding that connection to ourselves. Sometimes we're, we're met with a lot of overwhelming and difficult feelings, Though the more present we are to them, like we were sharing earlier, the less driven we are by the reactivity to them. And then the more present we can be for our children. Mm, Beautiful. I love the small. I love the theme of the small. You know, it just, there's something that feels really uh, compassionate 
you know, when I think of the small, just being compassionate with yourself and, and giving yourself grace with the power of the small. Beautiful. Um, so going back to the person that might feel unworthy, how do they now work with that, that feeling? They've, they've, they've personalized the sense of the absence or not having certain needs met as, okay, it, it was me. Um, what do they do? What does this person do? How do they, how do they work with it? Breaking into the same two steps. Um, I think sometimes having the awareness that it was never about yes. our worthiness or our yes. inherent goodness the awareness. can be relieving. Right. Mm. When we're able to now as an adult zoom out to all of those moments of absence, of disconnection, of maybe even explosive behaviors where we were maybe even directly told what yeah. was wrong with us or how unworthy we are to be able to, as an adult, zoom out. Right. And say, OK, this was never about us at all. That's that consciousness piece. Mm. Diving into the second step of, of choice, of presence, creating the space to be with what it is that happened, the absence to feel right? For a lot of us, the grief, the loss, the mourning of a relationship that never was. For me, becoming aware that, you know, while my mom was very physically a present and attuned to my physical needs, emotionally, she was a, mil a million miles away of no fault of my own, mm -hmm. though I, I contorted myself, right? I became the endless achiever, seeking love and connection from my mom, which is no surprise why when I came to the end, like I was sharing earlier, mm -hmm. I felt so empty, because that didn't give me right the feeling that I that I wanted and I needed. I had suppressed so much of myself and my emotions and my perspectives and my way of being by then um, that I was empty inside. And saying that to say, right, awareness is part of it. So much of my journey and all of our journey then is to allow ourselves in the presence of the feelings, right? Mm -hmm. For me, how is it to not have had an emotional connection with my mom? Oh. grieving, you yeah. know, what wasn't yeah. there for me, yeah. grieving, maybe a lot of, this is something I hear commonly, a lot of choices or happenings, the way my nervous system protected me from that lack of secure base was I dissociated or I disconnected. Mm -hmm. So the byproduct of that is for me, as I speak more readily about this, I hear from a, for a lot of others as well. I can't recall much of my life, much of my childhood at all. I can't mm -hmm. pull up the movie. So now I have a compounded grief of everything, right, that had happened. Maybe some of us then realized choices that we made driven by yeah. these unmet needs. And now we feel in grief and mourning and sad and sadness. So allowing myself some for some of us, it's anger, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. When my needs, anger is a natural feeling when our boundaries are overstepped, when we're violated or when our needs are consistently unmet. Right. So now, to, right, when we're talking about worthiness, understanding it wasn't about me as part of it, being with yeah. all of the ways that I feel. And for me, who can't recall what happened, because this is another question I get, can we still heal? Absolutely. Because mm -hmm. I still have all of the feelings, the emptiness, right, the sadness, sometimes the eruption of anger going mm -hmm. a little bit deeper into the next step of choice when I don't meet my needs, when I continue to not meet my needs, because mm -hmm. becoming worthy isn't just affirming, like I was sharing earlier. And this is why many of us don't gain the benefit or feel affirmations are helpful, right? That's part of it. I can lay down some new neural networks in my mind, but it's not until I begin to show up yeah. as a worthy creature, right? To yeah. honor and create some new limits for myself, not to overstep them, mm -hmm. to even explore and get curious about where those limits might be to care for my emotional world, which means to become present to the fact that I have emotions, not to just say I'm fine mm -hmm. right? and not allow myself to be with how I feel. Mm -hmm. And so becoming worthy is not just a, a mental exercise. It's again, that daily commitment to living in worthiness, which for a lot of us means becoming present, not just to the positive feelings of being worthy, to pain that comes wrapped around all of the ways we are made to feel not worthy, and then creating that daily commitment to become worthy in action by carving out space for our mm -hmm. physical needs, our emotional needs, and our, for our self-expression. Mm. Can you, like, it just triggered a question, like, could you speak somehow to that person that is an overachiever, right? And they're hearing this, and they're th but, but there might be, maybe it's not even a conscious thing for them, but I think many times there is sometimes a 
an unconscious resistance of healing because we've been driven by the unworthiness to achieve. And, and, and that unworthiness maybe has driven, has given us the drive to be better and be more and be the achiever or that anger or that pain to prove ourselves is what motivates us. So it's all that we know in terms of how to survive and be successful in the world. But now if I heal, wait, 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 hey, doc, what do you mean? If I heal, the hell's going to motivate me now? And, and so sometimes there's a certain fear of, who will I be if I really heal? Who will I be if I actually become whole? Will I lose my edge? Will I lose my drive? Will I lose my... Can you speak to that fear and help help sort of speak to that person? Yeah, speaking again to, to me, even in the present, <laughs> I'm, I'm not by any means going to claim that that conditioning, that yeah. overachiever self in my new book, How to Be the Love You Seek, I talk about neurophysiological conditioned ways of being, I call them the conditioned selves. And one mm -hmm. of them is the overachiever. Um, again, this way of being that I've learned and created in my childhood to successfully remain connected to the world around me. I, yes. My sense of self, right, is this PhD driven, you know, practice, everything that I wanted to accumulate continues. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just go away because I became mm -hmm. conscious of it. It's still ingrained, um, and I say neurophysiologically, because it's not just my thoughts in my mind, it's my body. It's all these moments of activation. It's how I'm most comfortable going, doing, having an endless to-do list that I'm continuing yeah. to remain distracted by. And to speak to your beautiful point, there's a lot of aspects of this overachiever personality that is celebrated by society, right? right. You're driven, hustle yeah. culture, always yeah. on the go. Yeah. Oh, there's 24 hours in a day. Well, great. Now we have access to 24 yeah. hours of work that we can do. And people are clapping right from the sidelines. So yeah. saying that to say, um, becoming aware of, you know, that, that aspect and also making space for the fear, because mm -hmm. a lot of us have wrapped our identities around it. Um, we have, mm -hmm. you know, this is the whole of who we know ourselves to be is not who we actually are with emphasis on B, right? That state of stillness, it's mm -hmm. more an emphasis on what we're doing. But again, this wraps into, we have to create this space, not only for the connection to an inner being who isn't endlessly in action, we have to create the ability to be with then what that means for ourselves, with all of the discomfort, with all of the fears, mm -hmm. with all of the worry. For a lot of us, we're shedding, you know, the identity. Some of us are shedding roles. We can overachieve in our relationships. We're always the one who's there and present and taking care of or tending to the relationship. So now we're dynamically yeah. changing the systems around us, which are going to challenge their nervous systems. And mm -hmm. for some of us, um, if we have abandonment wounds, when we're different and we kind of pull back to care for ourselves, now like dominoes, mm -hmm. we activate and right, all these kind of complicated things happen. But what I want to emphasize here for all of the overachievers, awareness doesn't take away that drive. That's, mm -hmm. that's real. That's embedded. And I'll just use myself as an example, having endless opportunity that I'm so grateful for, whether it's podcasting, writing new books, new projects, mm -hmm. having an email that's full of emails mm -hmm. waiting for me to reply to. I wake up every day, every morning. And while you heard me profess how important it is to be connected to my body and grounded in my nervous system and in my state of right. beingness with whatever is present, I am still driven to look at and to dive right into work, achievement, mm -hmm. performance, doing. And it is a choice point every morning. And I would lie if I said, oh, I just, it doesn't matter. No, some mornings I go right into work. Mm -hmm. And those are the mornings where I don't feel grounded in my presence. I don't feel stable. And more so I'm not able to be in my flow later. Wow. I'm not actually able to perform as efficiently and as effectively as I am when I make that harder choice, which is to say all of that can wait. And I need some time for me in the mornings, which means that again, neurobiology is still there. I'm racing with all of the shoulds, all of the worries about who's going to think what if I wait another day to respond to their email, right? How do I contain all of that fear, that anxiety, that meaning that I'm trying to make while I still stay grounded in the presence of what I need in that moment? And what I've learned over time is we are, in my opinion, all creative mm -hmm. beings, and creativity, and this is something that the overachiever with me continues to struggle with, hmm. is not a nine to five, 24 hour a day entity. We cannot force our way. I've learned that for me, 
what goes into moments where I'm in flow and where I'm producing, you know, books or whatever it is that I'm creating moments of doing and putting the pen to the paper, right? Being podcasting, being present to someone else and in this flow state, those moments are just as important as the moments that I've taken behind the scenes of stillness, Mm -hmm. not producing content or even consuming content. I really have had to learn because again, I think overachievers think drive, right? Push forward, regardless of what my body needs in a moment, sleep, rest. No, thank Mm -hmm. you. If there's a project and I've really had to teach myself as I continue to do to settle into that, that is not, in my opinion, the way that you're going to achieve the flow and the impact that we really want to be having. We can't force our way moments of rest, of stopping, of learning how to be in the discomfort of stillness is just as much, if not important than those hard pushed moments. But again, this all goes back to unlearning the identity, dealing with all the what ifs, the fear. Um, And I think the byproduct becomes, as I'm learning, I am so much more of an impactful, um, you know, kind of speaker, teacher, my creative projects, I feel so much more connected to Um, now that I've actually been able to take moments away <laughs> from mm. that overdriven part or the overachiever part of my personality. Beautiful. Beautiful. I have loved this conversation. Um, I'm curious, last couple of questions. Um, I've seen your work grow on social media. And I think, you know, when I when I saw it growing, I thought it was so cool because you often don't see like psychologist you know um just being authentic and 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 you yeah you see you know a jake paul you see uh you know social media influencer but to see a psychologist putting really great work out there and growing in social media i i just thought it was so cool and i'm just curious i guess i'm curious as to what you can say about that? Was it intentional? Was it a surprise? And I think more so for those that are therapists, psychologists, coaches, healers that want to put their work out there into the world and have impact and grow, is there anything you could, is there any advice you could give to them that might guide them, help them, support them in expanding the reach of their work to the world? authentically speaking um coming from my profession specifically as being a clinically trained psychologist there was a lot in our clinical training that actually taught us to do the complete opposite of right being out there being a individual Mm -hmm. sharing our own struggles and our own (laughs) you know healing journeys that was something that was all we were very directly taught to be Mm. kept out of the room I have since learned um, that I don't, you know, so much of healing is community, is relating, is hearing and resonating with aspects that when we are able to see and feel parts of our journey expressed in someone else. Mm. So saying that to say, when I even made the choice to, you know, kind of create the holistic psychologist Instagram account. I was at the place in my journey where I'd realize all of these different ways I suppressed myself, my opinions. Wow. I had all of this information now that I was transforming my life with that I wanted to begin to speak about. Mm. Um, I understood how important it was, you know, to for me to begin to share my perspectives, my individual journey. And if I'm being perfectly honest, I was beginning to feel a bit lonely and desiring of more authentic connections. I've always had a lot of people, a very active social life, but as I began to peel back my conditioning, a byproduct of that was I began to create changes in my relationships and some became more distant, some ended entirely. So I was really desiring, you know, a time and a space and a practice point, if you will, for me to continue to push my own edge and to Mm -hmm. experiment with, can I be a psychologist who is sharing what I hope to be very helpful information of this new holistic model of healing. And can I be me? Can Mm -hmm. I share how I struggled, how I've gotten here, my continued struggles? Um, So saying that to say it was so much of an activity in in where I was when I first created the account, I didn't, I had no idea or even any expectation of 
I had more fear of, well, what will other <laughs> clinicians think now that I'm sharing so much of my own struggles? And also what will humanity think? Well, are there yeah. people that are going to like me, you know, driven by this, you know, huh. people pleaser that I think a lot of us have, you know, I, I didn't want to, you know, upset, be misunderstood. I was, you know, struggling. So there was fear. Mm -hmm. And though I kept showing up and what I saw very early on was how resonating mm -hmm. so many aspects of not just the tools, while there were a lot of people that were, you know, coming into this new information as well, clinicians included, began to update their own practices. What was more resonating, which was inspiring me so much to begin to explore this community aspect of healing, which I ended up translating into the self-healer circle, was how much more healing it was to just hear someone else's story. And so quickly in the comments, you know, other community members from around the world were sharing their own similar past experiences of themselves mm -hmm. and the synergy and the energy. So saying that to then lead into a suggestion, um, you know, I think anytime we're able to be ourselves, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in our virtual lives, the ripple effect of, of that, the healing nature of beginning to, and now we do have social media, which is, you know, all of us mm -hmm. can hang our shingle and explore or present ourselves in whatever way that we choose. And I believe that the more that we do that, so anyone listening, if you're on the fence about it, of course, again, there might be difficulty for you to work through. If it's something new, you're putting yourself out there, just mm -hmm. like it was for me, there's probably going to be stress and fear. And, you know, you might hear, you're going to hear reactions from people. There's <laughs> going to be people who are commenting about what they think and opening yourself up for all different types of interpretation, misinterpretation, misunderstanding, and everything in between. So I, I never want to, you know, kind of, I always want to present very transparently the reality though, the value again, that many of us can gain as individuals having a space to share ourself and our story. And then the byproduct of that value that it provides and the impact that it provides to others is, is beyond measure um, in my opinion. So anyone, like I said, who is, who is thinking about it um, in terms of growing it, then just remaining committed. Um, for me, it was just consistently, you know, putting my story out there, not only in terms of the content that I was putting, though consistent because that community was so important for me too. Um, me, I made it a priority to make sure I wasn't just putting the content up there. I was engaging in the comments. I was listening um, to other individuals and their stories. I was listening to other pieces of content that would be of interest mm -hmm. that they wanted me to talk about next. And of course, if it was aligned, then I would continue a conversation from one comment section into mm -hmm. a post the next day. Mm -hmm. um, and that really created, again, this kind of ball of resonance, of universal uh, synergy and translated then very practically to a growing community, which is mind blowing to me that now five years later, I mean, upwards of 7 million just on the That's Instagram amazing. account in and of itself. Um, and it really just came from that grassroots, just staying there in action, people liking the work and beginning to spread it. And I think again, just beautifully bringing in so many concepts, the more connected and free we are not only within our own self-expression, knowing ourselves to even be able to put ourselves out there. And the more comfortable we get with doing that, I think the byproduct of that ends up being, you know, a beautiful community, beautiful opportunities. Now that I've had to write three books, I would have never imagined mm. as a possibility for myself wow. um, and continued, you know, community healing. Wow. Beautiful. Well, thank you for your courage and just authentically sharing yourself with the world. I'd love to have you on the podcast. Um, final question. If you were to, th you shared so much, but if you were to think about, let's say, the three most important life lessons that you've learned that you feel would evolve the consciousness of the next generation the most, um, that if you could pass these three wisdoms on as a gift to the next generation, um, what are what are your three wisdoms? What are your three kind of most important life lessons. So obviously it could change on a given day, but at least in this moment, curious what comes through, like the three things that I wish to pass on to the next generation. Such a beautiful question. I think the first thing would be that we are a conscious being. We might not be living consciously. We might be driven by that autopilot, all those habits and patterns, but even that awareness that it is possible to like I was practically sharing earlier, right? Become 
that conscious individual. Because in my opinion, nothing creates more empowerment in our life than having that moment of choice, right? Seeing and feeling maybe all of that instinctual and habitual drive in any given moment and saying, of course, because the moment's going to be different for all of us, the new choice is going to be different, but choice doesn't become possible until we are conscious, we'll be driven in that same habitual way. And for me, meeting the concept of consciousness fairly early on in my 20s, conceptually, I knew it was life-changing. Practically, it took me about a decade to begin to <laughs> embody that space. Um, so that to me is my foundational number one piece of wisdom. I think what then follows that building on that a bit is you are not how you've been leading life. So many of us aren't who we think we are to simplify it. Mm. Our life mainly consists of those habitual patterns that at one type time have kept us as safe or as secure as possible in whatever was happening around us in our environments and our relationships. And so many of us have come to wear those patterns as our identity and we limit the even possi possibility of possibility in, in ourselves. Um, and I think that is a huge piece of wisdom. Again, my my first book, How to Do the Work, is really grounded around that concept, which is so much of how we are in the world is impacted and is consistent of or created by our conditioning, not mm -hmm. right this pure state of awareness and who we truly are, that inner essence that I described earlier, which then brings me to three. Um, I truly believe, and this new book kind of wraps some science around this belief in terms of the power of our heart. Mm. Um, the heart, not our brain being more energetically powerful or the most energetically powerful organ, um, our heart, the organ of compassion, of connection. Um, I truly believe that what can be life-changing is the embodiment of, or the reconnection with our heart. I believe that's where, right, these inner desires live, the fire that we were kind of, I was offering earlier, the essence, um, and it is that organ that we are co-created or we are collective creatures. We need other people. And many of the habits that we've enacted throughout our life are, are not connecting or are not allowing us to be who we truly are. So the wisdom being our heart is so powerful. It's such a part of our human experience. Mm -hmm. The more reconnected we can become with our heart, the more empowered we can be then to be what I believe is possible for each of us is a compassionate caring, empathetic, attuned creature, not one that is living as I think many of us are in conflict, in disconnection, yeah. in protection and living as a result of lifetimes of our ancestors, even before us of survival mode, where we don't actually feel mm -hmm. safe to be who we are and be in connection with someone else who mm -hmm. is truly just who they are too. Folks, you heard it. Three, three life wisdoms from holistic psychologist, Dr. Nicole. Lepera, what's the best way people can find out about you and your work? So any information um, on the new book in particular, have a, it's available where all books are retailed. Hopefully they'll have a copy or two stocked. I have a webpage up, howtobelovyouseek.com with some information of some retailers I have highlighted on there. Um, in terms of social media presence at this point, I'm pretty much present on every social media platform. So however it is that any listeners like to consume content, of course, it all began, if you will, on the Instagram account, the.holistic.psychologist, though we've expanded to a presence on TikTok, on Twitter, on threads, mm. um, a YouTube channel, The Holistic Psychologist. So if you just plug in that handle, The Holistic Psychologist, you'll find me. Um, and I like to shout out those social media platforms because such a priority of mine outside of buying the books, of course, I appreciate all the support of all of you who do make the purchase of the books. It continues to alert retailers to it is a book that they want to stock yeah. on shelves for other people then to purchase the book, though I'm always a big proponent of just getting this information out there. Mm. Um, in addition to talking about these concepts across all the social media platforms, there is an incredible community. So come join, connect, be a part of the conversation, however it is that you like to spend your time online these days. Awesome. Thank you for coming on to Soul Talk. Um, you're welcome anytime. Folks, uh, share this uh, episode with anyone and everyone in your life that you feel would be inspired. I've been inspired. I've taken pages of notes. It's been an amazing episode. Uh, send me an email, kootblackson at kootblackson.com, K-U-T-E-B-L-A-C-K-S. 
CKSON. And uh, let me know your key takeaways from today's episode. Until next week, love now. If you've enjoyed this episode of Soul Talk, please do share the podcast with all of your friends. Let everyone know and make sure you download Soul Talk today. I'm looking forward to next week where I'll get to share more inspiration with you. Meanwhile, follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or social media. You can find out more about my work at www.cooplaxon.com. If you feel ready to take your life to the next level, join me at my exclusive event in Bali, www.boundlessblissbali.com, where you can find out more and apply. Also, make sure to remember to download my free two-part video training series and learn the ultimate secrets to happiness and fulfillment at coopblackson.com. Sending you all big hugs and love now.